0: Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where host Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio.
1: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor podcast.
0: I am a real estate investor and a mortgage agent. My name is Nick Hill. And my name is Daniel Foch, real estate investor and broker, and this is episode number 89. Is it episode number 89 already? It's a, it's a good year. Great good year. year. Great so year, actually, this, some might say. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about a new thing that was legalized recently, Fourplexes, okay, uh, and, and specify that quickly because that sounds like we're introducing like a drug or something cannabis like or <laughs> skateboarding <Yeah>. or something <laughs> like that all those legalize it t-shirts we grew up with uh oh, yeah. and, and we want to talk about sort of what this means and and for real estate investing kind of coast to coast because toronto is a really tough policy environment so for me this is kind of it is a big step
1: Yeah, more specifically, we're going to talk about the fact that it is now legal to put four units in a neighborhood in in a a lot of different, what used to be single family zoned places in Toronto without certain charges, which we will get into. And this is huge. And what Dan's saying is, you know, this is starting in Toronto. We're hoping this again, Toronto plays a leading indicator and kind of a role model for policy changes throughout the rest of the country.
0: Yeah, we recently did do an episode on how the government makes three times more off uh, more money off of housing than developers do. I think it was episode uh, eighty six, and and so the, the the lack of development charges is huge. Um, it's a savings of like thirty to ninety thousand per unit, and it'll really unlock missing middle housing for the city of Toronto, especially. But I think it's going to set a good precedent across Canada unlock missing middle
1: housing. You know, it's funny. I I love to like gamify things in, in business and in life. And if we think like that, you know, Dan, you and I, and our partners are playing the game of real estate. And it's funny, you know, now we've been talking about this policy and it's like, okay, achievement unlocked missing middle housing. And I think it's going to kind of create a renaissance period for investors across Canada
0: yeah i I mean i hate to say i told you so but we've kind of been saying this would happen and and that it would continue to happen across canada as a response to a housing crisis there's nothing profound about me predicting this i don't have a crystal ball or some predictive power the writing was just on the wall this was the next policy step otherwise we just basically descend into a really bad place as a country we don't want to go there so let's really break this down dan Yeah. Okay. So where should we start? I think we should start maybe at looking at the size of a house in Canada is probably the best place to start. Right. Mm. So household size in Canada, it's like, how did we get here? Right. Household size in Canada has been in decline since the 1850s. So it was over six people per household in the late 1800s and houses were significantly smaller there or smaller during that period of time they were yeah, on you average remember, like you know 1200 square feet or something like that
1: and you remember hearing about your you know your your parents maybe or your grandparents and they all had you know between seven and ten siblings those were the
0: good old days we're talking about right now Yeah, and they all shared bedrooms and, and small houses and, mm-hmm. uh, and so that, that number shrunk down to four to five people in from sort of like the 1930s to 1950s era and then to in between the three to four people range in the 60s to the late 70s and then five Finally, it fell below three people per household in the 1980s. And it sort of stayed, it kind of hovered and almost flatlined. I mean, it can't really get much smaller than that. It's kind of stayed between that two and three people per household ever since. But... Important distinction, and this is, again, where I always talk about the life cycle of an economy. It's like, where are we in relative to places like Europe or the United States? If you look at the United States, this decade will probably be the first decade in the last 160 years in which American households have more people, so a growing amount of people. Yeah. So similar to Canada, in the US, households had over five people on average in the early 1900s. Then household sizes fell basically until 2015, 2016, where it bottomed at 2.58 people on average in a house in the United States. And now in the US, that number has actually climbed from there to 2.63 people per household in 2018. So more people are beginning to live in a household. We're seeing a bit of a secular change in the way we consume real estate. Yeah, really, really great points. And it's I find it strange or maybe ironic is a
1: better word. I don't know, because more people are living in households. But again, what does that What is that household made up of? And this will come up again probably later and throughout some of these points. But some other shocking and very interesting stats are on empty bedrooms. So in 2016, this metric estimated around 32.1% of bedrooms occupied housing to be empty, which then dropped to 315 in 2021. At the same time, a large portion of Canadians still do Enjoy one or more extra bedrooms while other households are crowded, highlighting the inequality in housing outcomes. Now, let's look at Ontario, the largest province, because that 30% figure is nationwide. So many people say that their homes have too many bedrooms, and this is according to a 2017 report by the Canadian Centre for Economic Analysis, Cancia, that we've referenced in the show before. This is crazy. There are more than 5 million spare bedrooms in Ontario alone. 5 million. But benefits, including staying in the community that, that you know, these these boomers love, these people with the, I the like spare her bedrooms. Blaming it on boomers. Uh, I, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I, I'm leading you to believe that, but I didn't say it. Uh, next to their neighbor, you know, they know their neighbors. Uh, they have the conveniences that they're used to. And a lot of times those comforts or the economics, which we'll get into, can outweigh acquiring a different and maybe more
0: manageable space size wise because, you know, that might not exist. So now what does that statistical context look like for a city like Toronto? Well, I'm glad you asked because I just happen to have that stat right here in front of me.
1: A different report from 2017 said that there are now probably 2.2 million approximate empty bedrooms in Toronto. Yet it would only take about 350,000 bedrooms to house the 20% of Toronto residents who are underhoused,
0: not homeless, underhoused. Yeah. And I'm assuming that problem has been exacerbated since 2017. But before we get into the weeds here, let's go over sort of what just happened. Then we can kind of look at the challenges, the opportunity. And and let me tell you, this could likely be one of the bigger opportunities over the next few years. I I actually think maybe even over the next decade or two decades. Like I think that this is a 20-year opportunity um, for our generation of real estate investors. So Nick, tell me what just changed in Canadian real estate. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I completely agree. And I think there's, you know, as as and as we get
1: more into it, we'll start to discuss more why this is such an opportunity, but also the challenges that come with it. So, Toronto councillors have voted in favor of policy and zoning changes that will allow for multiplex housing to be developed citywide. Low-rise housing with 2, 3, or 4 units in a single building will now be permitted in all Toronto neighborhoods a move meant to help bolster the city's housing options and better serve its growing population. Greg Lintern, Chief Planner and Executive Director of City Planning, called this latest development, quote, an important step to removing exclusionary zoning, end quote, adding that it will enable property owners to create housing for extended families or rental units for tenants. So, Dan, before we go, let's talk about exclusionary zoning
0: yeah of course so first things first it is a bad thing with a dark past Um, exclusionary zoning is the use of zoning ordinances to exclude certain types of land uses from a given community especially to regulate racial and economic diversity uh, diversity in communities in the past it goes way back to post-war era toronto where restrictive and archaic zoning regulations were set and it's taken this long to get them changed
1: yeah, you know, it's, it's wild to think that Canada being such a young country and Toronto being such a young city that it has taken this long for them to change.
0: Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of cities and places in the world where they have done this type of thing, or they never made the mistake to begin mm-hmm. with. And a lot of that could have happened because, you know, they kind of grew from these almost more micro urban village concepts. Like, you know, I'm thinking of smaller European countries that are more geographically limited, but, you know, there's examples even in, in the US. So in Oregon, for instance, a duplex or four unit building can be built on any land previously zoned exclusively exclusively for single family homes. If it is in a municipality larger than 25,000 people. In California, the state passed groundbreaking legislation in 2017 to address its housing crisis and allow upzoning within traditional single-family neighborhoods to allow for the creation of more units. In Minneapolis, exclusionary zoning has been completely abolished. There's an awesome guy on Twitter, actually, who uh, Sweeney, uh, Sean Sweeney, I think, um, who does a ton mm-hmm. of great stuff mm-hmm. in uh In Minneapolis, and rents have declined as a result of that. And there's another example in New Zealand that showed that upzoning basically unleashed this flood of supply, and it's likely because it's easier to build for increased density.
1: Yeah, I mean, you say rents have declined, and I think everyone listening in Toronto, Vancouver, and and even other major metros across the uh, country are probably like, okay, now I'm now I'm paying attention. Um, you know, and we look at Tokyo, which now builds 100,000 homes a year in the form of buildings that are more than three stories high. And that's all following major reforms, which resulted in supply and demand being balanced, something that we have not figured out over here. The city prevented a shortage by building more and building up the change now remember Japan has mountains it's an island so they they don't face the same things that we do in Japan is extremely dense but uh you know the change was instigated by Japan's national government which which assumed more authority over development rules and revised regulations to allow for more density the canadian government should be taking notes without bringing politics into this Uh, Dan going back to what you said about New Zealand New Zealand meanwhile has gone full steam ed with a new policy that allows property owners to build up to three units within a three-story structure in five of the largest cities across that country the policy could increase the supply of new homes by nearly 50 to 100,000 in the next eight to ten years now those are some pretty good numbers and also of course in European cities Amsterdam, Copenhagen, Barcelona zoning changes have also allowed to integrate missing middle housing. There are now many buildings six to twelve stories tall in areas that were once zoned for single-family homes.
0: I think Copenhagen is one of those like really good examples, which just rows on rows of, of middle housing, middle-density housing. I, I mean, it does like I think you know p- people are kind of like when you look at it, some people are like this is beautiful and some people are like I absolutely hate the homogeneity of all of these like mm-hmm. but the reality is you drive through a Canadian subdivision and if there's a word you would use to describe yeah. it homogeneity would be if it, it, poison and it. And that, yeah that means that all the houses look the same, by the way, um, and so just a fancy it, way of saying cookie cutter. Yeah, <laughs> guess, yeah, yeah. It, it really is. And and you know the Twitter space that we did on this last night, it was like cookie cutter works. Like it, it it's an easy way to make a lot of cookies, right? Yeah, I loved. Uh,
1: I loved um, Eric's. Uh, he's like, cookies are delicious. Just put yeah. different decorations on them, and they all look good. And yeah you know, and, and, cookie, and
0: yeah and a cookie cutter is a good way to get a lot of them out quickly i mean they, they, i I don't know anybody who is as well spoken on the impacts and the the necessity of these policies than eric lombardi who who runs uh more neighbors um by the way which is almost like a uh they're supportive they basically support the development of housing i don't want to call them like a yimby group but they do they're b- very politically I think active that's what he calls for, himself actually. I don't so, know. Yeah. anyway but they, they're exceptional so if you're you know um, if you're a developer or investor listening and looking for, you know, for some somebody to help you champion and it, pol- policy initiatives just like this one, I would highly recommend that you reach out to him. And uh, and Eric will be at the Missing Middle com- or Missing Middle Summit. I keep calling it conference, Missing Middle Summit. Uh, by the way, uh, again, we're going to be there too, May 25th. Missing Middle Summit dot com is. I think that they're in their last round of tickets, so hopefully we'll see you there. But I think yeah. it's going to sell out pretty It'll in short really order. Insane.
1: Before we move on Dan, can you can you give us a definition of uh of NIMBY versus YIMBY?
0: Yeah, sure. So NIMBY is uh stands for not in my backyard. So this is people who don't want things developed. Actually, they actually don't not want things developed. It's they don't want it developed near them. Yeah, it's like they yeah, want it somebody not, else. Not in, that, just not in my backyard. Exactly. And then there's Yimby, which is yes in my backyard. So they would encourage the development of anything anywhere. There's Nimbys. I actually don't even think really exist. I think that they actually what they actually are is what I think it's called bananas, which is like <laughs> the acronym. Have you heard this one? I've heard this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Build what is it? Build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> um and oh, i mean good. like there's just like a lot of people who are are anti-progressive when it comes to uh housing any t- kind of development it could be it doesn't have to be housing it could be an office tower i would imagine they wouldn't like that either either mm-hmm. um i mean look economies need to grow um this is this is the path forward if you you know the the theory of capitalism requires perpetual growth and you know what in canada we have one of these like very unique gifts that we're not one of the other countries in the world that is declining in size, right? And so I think it's not a forever opportunity that everybody in the, in the world wants to move here and we ought to capitalize on it. And these were why I think I support things like the development of more housing, immigration of more people, growth of the economy. I mean, it's almost like you get the, you get sort of like this um, wealthy nation, right? You get a, a established or um, developed economy, but you also get the growth of a developing economy so anyway go back to the policy change it was it was needed at this point we're so late when it when it you know like to me it was i was almost at the point where it was like too little too late now we're catching up to i think we're in that catch-up phase so i think you're gonna see a lot of this stuff happening i mean edmonton has already done it vancouver has already done it this is gonna be a coast-to-coast phenomenon Mm -hmm. yeah Um, for sure so so let's get back on track here yeah. So Toronto was expected to attract 700,000 newcomers by 20, uh, 2051. And despite an uptick in the city's mid and high rise housing development, the supply of low rise housing, including multiplexes has continually lagged behind actual demand. And this is a high demand housing, housing uh, concept, especially because it's really good for housing families in these more suburban areas where it's walkable to a park, a school, it's got a backyard. Um, it doesn't need to be these super dense concepts like we're seeing in downtowns. In addition, under the new approved legislation multiplexes are expected to be exempt from FSI or floor space index provisions which would help them to be more feasibly built so right now there are na- neighborhoods in Toronto where the years actually um ha- i think single family detached houses can have a higher FSI than a uh than a multiplex can have for an FSI wait wait so FSI are we introducing a new acronym here Yeah, of course, the the dictionary must chime in. I kind of semi (laughs) define that one. So you just just hop right in there.
1: So again, yeah, as Dan said, floor space in tech index also can be known as FAR floor area ratio. But in simple terms, FSI or FAR is the maximum permissible floor area that a builder can build on a particular plot or a piece of land. So the FSI is the ratio of a building floor covered area to the area of available land. So for instance, a one-story building occupying the entire property from lot line to lot line would have an FSI of 1.0. The same as a two-story building occupying 50% of the property and a four-story building occupying 25% of the property. So again, that's
0: building up not out. So you basically take the piece of land, let's say it's 10,000 square feet. You take your building footprint. Let's say that building footprint is 5,000 square feet. And then you go however many stories. So if you build, uh, you know, if, if you build two stories at 5,000 square foot, footprint then that's ten thousand square feet and that's a 1.0 fsi on a ten thousand square foot lot um i appreciate that nick i appreciate the dictionary and i know that you've been really excited and you've been really i, and I want to introduce this concept to our audience because you've been you've been t- really pushing to to do more regular dictionaries and maybe even i'm going to tease this because i want to see Uh-oh, if we have audience we support for this idea maybe even add an episode where you do or one of us or both of us does a definition per week kind of like a middle uh, maybe it's a missing middle episode, but it's, it's maybe middle short definitions. Shorter, right? What is it? Yeah. Shorter? It'd be like 10 yeah, minutes, 10, 20 yeah, minutes. Yeah, we're thinking think? like five to
1: 10 minutes. Everything from like literally FSI to, to cap rate and, and everything in between. Just something the that internal you Internal rate constant, of return. Yeah, exactly. All the return metrics. Essentially any mortgage, construction, investing, or real estate term that you will likely have or will hear on this show. And maybe you want to reference that. You can go back and we're thinking of maybe releasing maybe on Wednesday or something like that. One short episode a week that just starts to go over those definitions that you need to know that you need to understand to kind of, you know, when, you know, when someone says it, you know, exactly what that means and and enough that you can use it in a sentence to impress potential partners or investors
0: yeah I, I really like the idea um if you're listening and and you think it'd be a good concept for us to put together i almost feel like we have to do it on video maybe then like release them as sort of like long form videos on like either like youtube or instagram or whatever it is um so we get these like little sounds like we yeah, i think both. we're gonna have to really because i feel like some of them are visual right like if it's like a ratio or you know there's a calculation you can kind of include that in there but um Yeah, if you're listening, we'd love to hear your feedback on if that would be a good fit. I think it would be a great fit for the show. It's just a matter of compiling all of that, uh all of that content. But without further ado, maybe we'll get back to that report. So from the planning and housing committee, given that this they say given that this bill form is regulated through numerous performance standards like setbacks, building length, et cetera, et cetera, and that FSI only applies to a portion of the city, staff are of the opinion that eliminating that FSI or floor space index restrictions for multiplexes is appropriate. So it's going to allow you to build bigger buildings, the city report explains this report also notes that if legalized multiplexes could help to accommodate and encourage aging in place while also helping to protect regional green space by better using urbanized land so seeing more of those um multi-generational households allowing baby boomers who nick picked on at the beginning of this episode to oh you did say boomers (laughs) but um but you know the baby boomers who you know might want to live with their family to have better uh, access to care it's very you know very common in in other places in the world for people to to spend kind of like their their time aging close to family and similarly they want to maybe help being part of uh raising their grandchildren because you know we hear it takes a village so um i think that there's a lot of benefits to this probably more benefits than than drawbacks for sure for sure, no, I, I completely agree. And, and so, just to recap, essentially, the major
1: news here is that the city council voted to allow for what was zoned as single family areas to now be zoned as essentially go crazy on multifamily up to fourplexes.
0: Yeah, and even better, you can build a fourplex, but you can also have a laneway suite, so actually five units, which is. This one's kind of tough because you only get the, you only don't have to pay development charges. When I talk in other episodes about that arbitrage, um, you only don't have to pay development charges up to four units. As soon as you put the fifth unit, um, and, and there are probably subsequent changes that will unwind this a little bit, but as soon as you go to the fifth unit, which would get you to the point where you can get CMHC multifamily or MLI select financing, you now have to pay development charges. So it's such a catch 22 there. It really is. And, and and we'll get there, but let's let's stay focused here because this is pretty amazing
1: and, and huge news. And I wanted to touch on something that you just said um, at the piece about aging in place from the report. Now, Dan, you and I have done a lot of cold calling over the years to different areas of Toronto for clients, including neighborhoods like Corsa Italia, Little Italy, Trinity Bellwoods, Little Portugal, and several other of those kind of like old school neighborhoods.
0: Yeah, totally. And and what do so many of the older people and boomers that are living in those areas say when we call? Well, not to get dark here, but many of them
1: say they plan on staying there until they die. One guy a few weeks ago actually called it his coffin. I mean, he did it with a smile on his face. But, you know, the point is that most of them don't want to leave. And I think that's for a few reasons, some that we've already spoken about, um, you know, whether it's the love of the neighborhood, the familiarity of it, their friends and family close by. It's kind of the family gathering place. But I'd say the biggest reason is likely that when they sell, where do they go? They really only have a few options. You know, they've got an old folks home, which is a no for most people if they can avoid it. A condo, again, a no for most people. Or the ideal situation, a smaller, cheaper, more usable space where they can actually realize
0: the gains from that house they just sold, which they owned free and clear. Yeah, for sure. And I think it is interesting, you know, and, but it affects young people as well. More and more young people are waiting longer to start families. And like this is, you know, in a lot of cases where, you know, maybe the quality of life isn't better in, in certain countries that are growing per se, but, you know, the the cost of living and and when you get to a certain point where you kind of settle and you're seeing this in a lot of other countries that just pulled a lot of people out of the middle class, China's population, you know, there's there's um, statistical evidence that it could be contracting in other places in the world. Um, more and more young people are waiting longer to start families. They're having less kids and when they do, they're living with their, and potentially living with their parents longer. and a lot of that can be traced back to the fact that you know in Canada and in much of the Commonwealth, uh, people can't afford to they can't afford a place to raise and start a family.
1: Yeah, I mean you and I see it
0: anecdotally in, in our friends
1: all the time, right? Now, I do want to chat about a few things here, Dan, primarily belts green and yellow and no we're not talking levels of karate here dan what is the green belt but more
0: specifically and and more importantly for this conversation
1: what is the yellow belt
0: yeah so ontario's green belt protects farmlands communities forests wetlands and watersheds it also preserves cultural heritage and sports recreation and tourism in ontario's greater golden horseshoe area yeah, it does stretch all the way
1: across the Golden Horseshoe. I think it's like over 2 million acres. However, in a plan unveiled in November 2022, uh, finalized in December, despite protests across the province, they will now be re- removing 7,400 acres of land from the Greenbelt to build 50,000 homes on that land. But the plan is also to add 9,400 acres of of new
0: green space back to the green belt. It is interesting and I felt that this point in time would would come for a while where you would have sort of two different factions on um on one side, you know, like I guess sort of on the same same end of the political spectrum or almost in the same area of the political spectrum fighting for fighting against one another for different social causes so you almost have housing versus environmental issues right now um and the yellow belt it it is different than the green belt and it covers about 75 percent of the land in of toronto and something like 31 percent of total land in toronto was zoned for literally one single unit in a city and a world-class city at this rate um so another 20% is employment areas and open spaces where no residential development is permitted. So the city is left with this tiny area where denser residential can happen. And this is where you get this sort of weird scope of housing that we have or had hopefully in past tense in Toronto, where you literally have basically large McMansions, and then you have high density, tall towers with like shoebox size units in them. Um, generally within the yellow belt, it is not allowed or it was not was not allowed until a couple of days ago. To build anything but single-family houses on these large residential lots.
1: Yeah, totally. And and you know, if you do any research on the missing middle, and there's some great stuff on YouTube. If you're if you're more of a visual person with this kind of stuff, it really becomes so clear. Look at an aerial photo of any major, you know, no, I shouldn't say any, excluding a few, but most major cities across North America, you'll have the central business district where you'll have massive office towers and surrounding that you'll usually have an array of condo towers. And then after that, it just literally drops all the way down to single family kind of seemingly as far as the eye can see until maybe in the GTA and you get from a Toronto to a Mississauga and there's more like another cluster of towers, but you know, it it doesn't make sense. We are really missing that middle anyway. So We've, we've you know, as Ontario, we've kind of passed a bit of the green belt. We've moved on to the yellow belt. We've we've achieved that. Now it's onto the purple belt. It's so, okay. Sorry, I had a bad, bad joke. I don't know there any was a lot of effort there for sure, for sure. I don't know any karate stuff. I do want to talk about what you think this will do to the price of homes that, that are single family and that could be up zone for this. Like, will
0: this make that housing more valuable i it is really tough to say i mean i think that in order for some like hypothetically yes because what you can do with it is a lot more but I don't think it's like going to instantly change anything. Um, but it it could also like it also introduces more supply. So now all of a sudden, you know, if you, if let's just say hypothetically that 10% of all of the houses in the city of Toronto now became four plexus, everybody just went and renovated them. Now all of a sudden you just 4X'd 10% of the housing supply. So you turn 10% of the supply into 40% or equivalent to 40% of the supply. There's a lot more units, which reduces that excess demand. Um, either on the rental side or on the on the um on the purchase side, if people can go rent a unit or maybe they buy a fourplex with their or duplex with a with another family or whatever it is, um, but it is interesting because it it has I mean I think in Toronto especially, um, our market's very volatile and very uh, temperamental and interest in multiplexes has basically skyrocketed. Like I had. A couple of I have have a couple of multiplexes on the market now, and they were I don't mean there were some interest, but not a ton. And then the day that this happened, it was like I just a flood of interest immediately. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, then the owner at the same time is like, I'm also interested in maybe keeping these. I don't know if I want to sell them anymore. Clients are literally taking homes off of the market because he's like, Why would I sell if I can go fourplex this? And the other part is we're kind of in that like. Holding pattern where we don't actually know how how executable this is going to be, but you're you think that the value, the perceived value generation is there, and you're kind of just waiting for the next thing to happen. For sure, and I mean, if
1: you if you do have that mindset, and you should have that long term mindset in all in all real estate investing, right? So something that you were maybe planning on holding, or maybe you were planning on liquidating that asset just because you want to deploy that cash elsewhere, but now that long term hold has gotten you know, way more attractive. So, you know, maybe I agree, maybe it will make it more expensive in in the short term as there's, you know, maybe a a bit of a gold rush mentality to this new opportunity. But as we go through cycles, maybe that, you know, this new stock of housing becomes cheaper or it forces the other housing types to get cheaper. But, you know, we have to look at how slow is this change? How long is it going to take to see any real material effects from this? this is going to be, you know, five years, 10 years. Is it 20 years out that that Toronto actually realized Toronto investors, developers and and just, you know, the average
0: citizen just trying to make it in the city that they actually realize the benefits of something like this? I, you know, it's it's tough to say. I mean, it, it doesn't happen overnight, as they say. I think this is another Nick Hill original. I heard it on um, a podcast. Actually, Rome wasn't built in a day. Um, yep, that's me. Yeah, I knew it. The, you know, it's all. It's, Thanks
1: for giving me credit. Credit where yeah, credit's due. I
0: mean, so, you know, <laughs> you think about the laws of supply and demand, but they also work in a cyclical fashion. So you get a point where now you've got a, a bunch of a supply that can be unlocked, and we have a huge excess demand right now. And supply, it'll take a long time for supply to catch up. And then eventually you'll reach an equilibrium where, you know, maybe you start to see costs come down. Um, new units are built and then they're probably going to start to be more expensive off the bat while we're still learning how to get these best practices and efficiencies until they become more normalized. Um, you know, the housing crisis wasn't created overnight and it's not going to be solved overnight either. Yeah, no, great, great points. Um,
1: especially the one where you quoted me. Uh, you know, it the the coolest thing is I think it it this whole thing creates a a whole new vehicle, right? It's a new horse on the racetrack. It's something new that people can take a chance on a bet. And I think it it creates a ton of opportunity for new business and and creativity and 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 also gentrification in the best sense of the words of neighborhoods and some neighborhoods that that could really use it. I mean, we see these absolutely hodgepodge you know duplexes and triplexes that are that aren't operating efficiently whatsoever Um, so maybe this is an opportunity to you know make
0: these buildings better and build more efficiently and i think it is um you know it's almost like a it is an urbanization thing as well like Toronto is a very suburban city. A lot of those neighborhoods are very much suburbs within the boundaries of, of a, of a city. And, you know, as the, the greater Toronto area and the greater Golden Horseshoe grows and ideally your infrastructure improves, which that's kind of the, the X factor here for Toronto, where it's, it's really difficult from our, I think, you know, to solve that problem. Um, You get to this point where the suburbs, like the actual what maybe would have been bedroom communities before your York region, Durham region, Peel region, um, they start playing a more suburban role and maybe that's where the the single family detached housing sort of stays and you start getting more density, um, smaller density concepts being introduced into a city, which should ultimately end up being a city. I'm sorry to anyone who lives in the city of Toronto and wants it to be a suburb. It's it's just that's not how cities work in the 21st century and in a growing Area, um, where you know where you have again seven hundred thousand people coming over the next, like you literally have a city being added to your city in the next <laughs> yeah. two decades. It's just like the figure out the math here for me and just explain to me how we can make that work without without a change like this.
1: Yeah, it's it's funny. I just want to throw this out, and we've we've said this before on the show. This is not a Nick original. When any, ever, whenever any, my and this is funny because my girlfriend and her friends are, are in New York right now. Um, and you know, I'm seeing some of the Instagram pictures they're taking, and I just i love the buildings there. And anytime anyone compares Toronto, well, Toronto's the New York of Canada, we're like a little New York, not spending like, enough time in New York. Go, well, don't even, you don't even have to go look at a photo of it, like walk around on Google Maps. I don't care, but there are absolutely no like you know, single detached homes in New York. Like, find me some, right? I mean, it just doesn't exist. So Anyways, um, Dan, you know, we have so much more to talk about on, on on this topic. I don't wanna. I don't wanna go overboard here. Um, I do want a couple of quick, rapid fire things that will probably turn into other full episodes or parts of other full episodes because we we're not really gonna touch too much on on development costs or or maybe like you know what what these things can yield and and maybe some of the more economics of it. Um, In this episode, because this is more of an introductory one, but I just want to rifle off maybe a couple quick points, get some, get some of your thoughts quickly and then we'll wrap it up. So, you know, a few ways to change things, um, would be maybe drastically changing the building code first of all in Ontario which is restrictive and then maybe changing it and making it a bit more you know, less regulated across the country because for instance Montreal has such a different building code than Vancouver which has such a different building code than Ontario which kind of complicates things and makes the whole industry very disjointed. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah I
0: completely agree and I mean I think that there are you can see you can visibly see breakdowns like you know between provincial and and municipal planning policy between financing so talking about you know you have in the notes here CMA Policy requirements changing. Like, there's going to be a gap now where the best financing product and the most meaningful financing product, MLI Select, to create new rental housing, doesn't apply for, for these basically tax exempt multiplexes in the, the area of the country that need it needs it the most so fourplexes in toronto totally. you know basically the developers have to choose between do i want to save money on dcs or do i want to go to five units and get mli select and that gap is going to become a problem i think so i think we'll start to see the policy environment um adapt as well I, and other things you, you know you've made notes on here parking standards um new construction technology infrastructure which i touched on i mean i think that there's a lot of um, I think there's a lot to watch and, and watching this space take shape is going to be important. But the people who have, who have the, uh, the audacity, the boldness to, to make a bet, to invest, to take the risk, to, you know, foresee kind of what they, the way that the path that they see it taking and, and make a bet on the investment thesis that they form as a result of that. I mean, we've been saying that we felt that this was the biggest opportunity in, in Canada since we started this podcast, uh, literally almost a, exactly a year ago right now. Yeah. So, yeah, I I think it's just figuring out the specific nature of it is is where the the big money is going to be made.
1: Yeah, no, I completely agree. And look, like very early days for all of this, this literally just happened a few days ago. This is Friday, May 12th. This happened on Wednesday, May 10th. So... Very early days, but uh, we will be constantly revisiting this topic. And um, we are both going to be actively involved in, in hopefully trying to put together some financial products for people trying to do this, as well as assisting with builders. And of course, doing things like the missing middle summit and working with all the amazing people to put that on. So let's, uh, let's leave it there. This has basically been an introduction to. Multiplexing everything in Toronto, and uh, there will be plenty more where this came okay. from. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G and H Mortgage Group. License number one zero three one seven, agent license M two one zero zero four zero three
0: seven. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.